Since the dawn of civilization, spies of every nation and culture have worked to infiltrate their adversaries and glean the information that will give their side the advantage. The stakes are sky high, the strategies varied and imaginative, and the ultimate sign of success is that no one ever even knew you were there. In each episode, we will explore the moral and ethical gray zones of espionage, where treachery and betrayal go hand in hand with cunning and courage. This is the Spycraft 101 podcast. Welcome to your clandestine classroom. This is episode number 80 of the Spycraft 101 podcast. Today, I'm speaking with journalist and documentary filmmaker Justin Webster. Justin worked as a business reporter for the London newspaper The Independent in the 1990s before moving on to filmmaking, where he directed his first documentary, FC Barcelona Confidential, which debuted in 2004. Since then, he's directed several more award-winning films on a wide variety of subjects. I invited him onto the podcast after watching his incredible six-part series titled Nisman, The President, The Prosecutor, and The Spy, which is currently available on Netflix. It's the story of the life and death of Alberto Nisman, a federal prosecutor in Argentina who was found dead at home in January 2015, just hours before he was scheduled to testify before Congress and implicate Argentinian President Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner in the cover-up of Iranian involvement in a 1994 terrorist attack in Buenos Aires that killed dozens and wounded hundreds more. But before we dive into this amazing story, I want to say a big thank you to everyone listening who is also supporting me on Patreon, including Patrick M. and Amal T. Your monthly contributions there help me keep this podcast going week in and week out. As a way of thanking my patrons, I offer a lot of great freebies and promotions, including free and discounted books and products from the Spycraft 101 store. Patrons also get exclusive access to long-form articles of mine that aren't available anywhere else. If you haven't signed up for my Patreon yet, but you want to, just click the link in the show notes on whatever podcast platform you're listening to right now. Justin, thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Justin, for, for inviting me. It's nice to be talking to another Justin. I know. That's exactly what I was thinking. I think this is the first Justin-Justin conversation that I've had on the podcast so far. They've been pretty rare for me, I must say. I haven't known that many Justins or, or, or certainly not been interviewed by any. This is the first time. <laughs> wow. Well, I'm honored. I appreciate it. So I have to tell you, almost as soon as I started watching your documentary, I knew that I had to invite you onto the show for an interview because this story is one that I have to admit I knew nothing about initially. But once I actually dove into the documentary, I, re I really couldn't stop. I, I ran through the whole thing in just about 30 hours, I think, which is about as much TV as I've watched in quite a long time, to be honest. But absolutely fascinating story. So I, I really appreciate you coming on and, and sharing your insights into it. Can you start off by telling me, because you haven't, or you focused on a wide variety of topics for your previous documentary work, what is it that led you to this story in particular? Well, I was actually in New York with a team filming a football film. In fact, my family kind of jokes that the two kinds of films that I do or we do, because I work with my partner, Sumta, who's the producer, are murder and football. Political murder, often, and football. And so anyway, I was, do I was doing a film about the, the creation of New York City Football Club, and we were editing it, and one of our editors was Jewish and closely connected and had always wanted to do something about the Amir bombing. 
And at that particular time, the, the Nisman story happened. Alberto Nisman was found, the prosecutor who was investigating the Amir bombing, was found dead in his bathroom in, in January 2015. So that's when we were, we were editing the film at the time. And we were discussing it. And Martin Rocca was my, kind of, my, my, my number two on the film, a great young director who's Argentinian. And he and I got into a flaming argument because he said that we couldn't ever touch this story. Because in the end, when we discussed it, I said it would be interesting to do something about the Amir bombing, but really, really what the most important thing would be to find out what really happened in this case. I have to say also, we did get some calls. I got some calls about the story because a previous film of mine called I Will Be Murdered, which was set in Guatemala, it's an extraordinary story too, about a guy called Rodrigo Rosenberg, it's a kind of a political murder or suicide story, which has some parallels with this. So, so there were people suggesting that I should do it. Anyway, I got into this flaming argument with Martin because he said we couldn't touch it because he'd like to go back and live in Argentina one day and it was too dangerous. Mm. And, wow. and I, said, I said, rather like with the Guatemala story, it depends how you do it. And it, it wouldn't be impossible. Not that I particularly wanted to get into another story which is even bigger and even more difficult and, and Rodrigo Rosenberg's story was hard enough but anyway we kind of left it at that and then Martin went back to Argentina for Christmas and when he came back he had just started to work on a little bit of access talking to one of the lawyers so in fact you know secretly without telling me he'd come around to the idea that we should try and do it and so I felt kind of obliged if Martin was brave enough to to think about doing it. And so that's when we started. And that was back in 2016. Wow. Okay. And so the documentary finally debuted in 2020. So was this like a full-time venture for you for the next four years once you began? It wasn't full-time. I'd say it was about half-time, sometimes full-time. Certainly towards the end, it was full-time, but it took four years. Wow. And was that a decision that you came to very quickly to make this your next big project? Because I know that all of these must, you know, involve a huge commitment of time and effort on your part. Were you just like totally certain by that point that this was the story that you wanted to cover? Yes, I became certain that it was what I wanted to do or that, 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 yes, it kind of, sometimes these stories kind of grip you. And there's also a thing about you know independent docu documentary filmmaking. Um, this this documentary ended up on this series, ended up with the backing of Netflix. But they're not the only people who backed it. It was a Spanish platform and ZDF, the German broadcaster too. That whole side of things of kind of getting the production going is is you kind of do it in parallel anyway. And that's the kind of the industrial side of things. Which, but that that means that it takes a bit longer. But also this sort of story needs that sort of time in order, to, in order to get the access, but also in order to kind of figure it out. So, and also there was another aspect too, which I thought was interesting from the start, is that there's an enormous backstory to this. It goes all the way back to 1994. And then there's the, you know, the, the suicide murder question, which kicked off in 2015. But then there was also the unfolding of the story as we were filming over the four years that the production lasted. From a filmmaking point of view, that was very challenging, but very creatively and journalistically stimulating. Wow, okay. So because you mentioned your other documentary from Guatemala about Rodrigo, that I, I will be murdered, I think you've covered these you know, kind of stories of 
of government intrigue and, and that sort of thing in the past. Did covering this one, uh, documenting it, did it lead to any unexpected obstacles? I mean, were you did you go into it expecting a lot of you know pushback from the Argentine government, for example? Well, I went into it with the same in, in, with the same philosophy as that I'd been arguing with Martin about in New York, which is I think if you go in telling everybody what you're going to do and talking to everybody and treating everybody the same, being completely open, with time that can that can win people over. In this particular case, it was really tough because the the, the subject was incredibly politicized tremendously politicized and people had very entrenched opinions sometimes on very little evidence but I mean I used to on a first the first filming trip was in the beginning of 2017 and, and I'd ask taxi drivers what they thought and everybody you know it was everybody would have their immediate opinion and also there is fear there's a lot of fear there was a lot of fear is still a lot a lot of fear around this kind of a story so there were had been projects people said that they had tried to do things and then be you know but they decided not to. But often I thought that it was more a question of fear getting the better of people rather than there really being a direct threat. So we had trouble getting people to talk to us because they were afraid. We got people telling us that it was dangerous, but we didn't get any direct threats. And actually, we in the end, we got quite a lot of collaboration, well, a tremendous amount of collaboration from everybody. Yes, yes. Some of the interviews are just mind blowing, honestly, as the series kind of progresses there. So you you did mention already the Amia bombing a couple of times, and I know that's where the story kind of begins. So can you take us back to 1994 and exactly what happened with this bombing in Buenos Aires? Sure. 1994, July 1994, a huge bomb went off in the AMIA, which is the Jewish kind of mutual association, a kind of a group of associations in a big building not far from the center of, of Buenos Aires, there were 85 people died and there were many, many more injuries. And it was a terrible, terrible, you know, tragedy. And immediately there were questions about what this was. Was it a terrorist attack? Nobody claimed responsibility for it and being a Jewish center there were and being given the situation in the in the world in the Middle East at the time and also the fact that this is Carlos Menem was the president he was of Arabic descent and Lebanese descent you know the geopolitics of the time was there was a war raging in Lebanon and there's there's a large Jewish population in Argentina there's also a, a reasonably large Arabic population, especially kind of in the border area. But anyway, so there was this kind of, nobody knew what had happened. Two years previously, there had been another bombing, which is of the Israeli embassy, which also not really been clarified who was responsible. But I think in the end, the Supreme Court later came to the conclusion that it was Jihad Islamica. But I have to say, none of these investigations really were very convincing from the beginning, or you need to take everything, if like, pretty carefully. So that was the AMIA bombing. And then there was an investigation that started pretty much immediately. And then it kept on going, and, and with many twists and turns. Hmm. So if I recall correctly, this was and maybe still is the largest and most damaging terrorist attack in South America, wasn't it? It was actually the biggest terrorist attack. I mean, it, 
if it was a terrorist attack exactly i mean you have to keep your mind open a little bit about that but i mean if it was the if it was the biggest terrorist attack if it was a terrorist attack in the west before 9/11 and it was the biggest loss of life amongst Jew, from a from a jewish attack on jews since the second world war it was a huge thing at the time in 1994 okay so yeah it was enormous event i still i recall a little bit of it at that time even here in the united states i mean it definitely made the news even though it was so far away but was there a particular reason that this attack occurred there i mean that that seems like very uncharacteristic other than the one previous attack on the israeli embassy that you mentioned it seems like there are targets a lot you know closer and maybe more accessible than this particular center in buenos aires well that's right i mean that was the question i mean what does this mean who did it who was behind it right from the beginning and right from the beginning the israeli government sent help to investigate and so did the american government with the with the fbi were involved in in the early stages so there was a lot of international help to try and figure out who was responsible and so in the early stages of the investigation there were you know there were there were findings and then there was a case that was brought later and and a case that fell apart and then then another case which where Albert Neisman came in he then took over the failed case if you like and i can tell you a little about the why the case failed if you like yes absolutely were any specific individuals ever arrested or accused of or of this attack or was it just attributed to a certain group no early investigations in fact it was the israelis who found inside the in the rubble of the building they found a motor a kind of a destroyed motor they were able to trace this to a particular type of van and from that they were able to trace it to a particular a particular common criminal a guy who was called carlos telegin who was a kind of you know low level kind of mafia guy involved in all kinds of you know prostitution rackets and and forgery and you know smuggling all kinds of illegal businesses and the case was built on the fact that he then apparently gave this van to a group of corrupt policemen and these corrupt policemen knowing that it was going to be used against the Amia Jewish center gave it to to somebody else who who we weren't they weren't it wasn't then sure this is what was called if you like the local connection so it was it was judged to have been an international attack but the local connection was this kind of low level mafia guy and a bunch of corrupt policemen who kind of facilitated it however this case which was investigated and set up by a guy called Galliano the judge Galliano fell apart spectacularly when it was revealed that the judge had been bribing paying Carlos Tejedin for his testimony. So, wow. This whole thing then fell apart to the dismay obviously of the of the victims and their families and and to the shame of the of the Argentinian system and that, and and so when in fact this case fell apart they had to bring in new prosecutors to 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 sort of kind of reinvestigate it. Okay, is this already like several years after the fact that the initial case with the local connection kind of falls apart? 
Yep, this is several years after the after the fact. I forget the dates exactly, but we're probably talking about 2008 or something like that. I mean, this is okay. when. Oh wow! That's in fact, cool. actually, no. Wait, 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 wait. Let me see. It was, it was the one, the turning point in the story, if you like, which is probably a bit earlier. It's 2004, maybe. Sorry, the dates are going to go. I'm going to get fuzzy on, but it was actually when just before Kirchner came into power. So this would be talking about 2002, 2003, actually. Okay. So so yes. But that's that. That was a big thing because the, if you like, the the early part of the investigation was botched so badly that, looking back on things, that was how one of the reasons why it's been so difficult to unravel since. Yeah, it seems like a real debacle from an you know outsider perspective that I have. And and you mentioned this is already like eight or nine years after the bombing. I'm sure the family members and the survivors had been waiting far too long at this point for some concrete answers, and they, they still were not coming even close to a decade later. That's got to be horribly frustrating. Absolutely. Absolutely. So at, at what point did Alberto Nisman get involved in all of this? He got involved, actually, now I'm coming, the dates are coming back to me slightly. He, got in, he was called in by the two other prosecutors while this was still the... the in fact, he in court sustained this case against the corrupt policemen. They were the only people. There was Carlos Telugin and these corrupt policemen on, on trial. Alberto Minisman, who was a rising star as a courtroom lawyer, court, courtroom prosecutor, was brought in by the other two prosecutors, Mullen and Barbaccia, who had kind of built the case. And he was brought in so halfway through the investigation. This is kind of the end of the 90s, 98, 99. And then he was the kind of star in the courtroom leading the prosecution. And he was, if you like, the survivor of the prosecutors when the whole case fell apart, because the other two prosecutors and the judge were then accused of having you know, broken the law and, 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 and disgraced their professions by, by bribing the policeman. But Alberto Nisman, he survived and he was deemed to have been not to have known about the bribing, and therefore it was on his shoulders that the, the next big effort to, to investigate the case landed. Hmm. Okay, do you know, why was he in particular chosen? Was it his experience or his you know, aggressive pursuit or connections or some other reason that you're aware of as to why it wound up kind of on his shoulders from then on? Yes, it was partly his, I think, partly his... His, his kind of character, he seemed like an impressive and eloquent kind of prosecutor, partly because he knew the case, but he didn't seem to have been involved in the, in the dirty business. And also, importantly, because he had a close connection or growing close connection with the intelligence services. And the man, Jaime Stuso, Jaime is actually Antonio Stuso, but is known as Jaime Stuso, who is the kind of super spy who everybody thinks knows everything. Yeah, I know he played a big role, I guess, a little bit later in the story and also behind the scenes quite a bit. So I want to talk about him a lot. But so Nisman came in around 1998. You said so this is still 17 years, 18 years before you actually began the documentary. So the last 17 years of his life, this particular case was like his major focus. Is that accurate? Absolutely. Absolutely. And it grew to be much more. I mean, he was one... He was one. He was part of the investigation to begin with, but after it fell apart, and after 
he then took it on after you know the new government came into power and and he gave him a sort of special prosecuting prosecution office if you like to investigate it became his one job wow. absolutely completely devoted to to the the Amir case hmm. that's incredible singular pursuit for so many years there what did he do differently from the previous prosecutors did he look to a different list of suspects or just view the evidence differently or something else he focused almost exclusively on the international connection and specifically the Iranian connection. He investigated the Iranians. He built a case with the help of Jaime Stuso to prove that, or to try and prove, that Iran had ordered the bombing of the Amir and that Hezbollah had been you know, the, the guys on the ground who committed it. Okay, what kind of evidence was developed to support his theory or his findings anyway? Was it like a forensic evidence from the bombing or was it eyewitness testimony, something like that? Or was it intelligence? It, to, to sustain that it was in fact the Iranians, it was almost almost entirely intelligence through through Hamistusa. And actually the connection with to identify that the 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 person who was allegedly driving the van was from Hezbollah was also largely based on intelligence. Okay. I mean the intelligence was there were some, you know, particular sources, sort of Iranian defectors or dissidents who alleged to know that there in 1993, I think, or, or, or shortly before the bombing, there was a specific, specific meeting in Iran. It was all quite detailed, but the sources were very flimsy, hmm. extremely questionable. That, that was one of the characteristics, I think, of the of the investigation in general. I think in the, doc in the documentary you've got this guy called James Bernazzani from the FBI who in the first episode says, just as a concept, you know, he, he was surprised how people were constructing the case, you know, the, the theories, and then trying to find the evidence to support those theories, or, or basically taking a view and then looking for evidence to support it, rather than letting the, letting the conclusions arise from the evidence. And I think... I think that was one of the things that was going on with the investigation right from the beginning. Yeah, that's a, that's a serious error. I think anyone could see that for certain. And you mentioned Jaime Stuso, and he was a senior, I guess he was like a senior counterintelligence guy with the National Intelligence Agency there. Is that correct? That's right. The famous CIDE, which is the state intelligence, which everybody is 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 kind of frightened of because they... You know they've existed existed all the way through the military dictatorships, and there's a feeling that they 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 have an enormous amount of information. They have you know the dirt on everybody. So, and Jaime Stusa was a he became a kind of eminence grise, a kind of person who that who everybody considered to be both tremendously effective, ruthless. And and in control of the of the intelligence of the state intelligence almost you know entirely. Yeah, I saw. I know he he f features extensively in your documentary, and I, I know that you got to sit down with him for some interviews afterwards. And I have to tell you, I kind of I could not get a bead on that guy. He just seemed very enigmatic, even when he's sitting down on camera for a question and answer session. He was just a, a tough one for me to kind of figure out. Did you feel the same way or did you kind of, you know, warm up with him or the interviewer warm up with him over time? Yeah, I think I, I think I think it's kind of interesting to see how somebody like that is very good at 
deflecting and 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 hiding behind things and so i suppose if you're looking for to try and read where he's coming from it's very very difficult but if you see that that's his kind of main characteristic then i think you could understand him a bit better i think he's somebody who serves his own interests very effectively and somebody who's who's a survivor so is he difficult to read yes i mean he's difficult to pin down yes and difficult to read i think he's a very very you know pure expression of this kind of 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 somebody who's who's steeped in 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 counterintelligence in knowing how to create stories to basically to favor certain interests very difficult if you try and get the truth out of him hmm. yeah i can imagine i mean that's kind of his job in a way and he seems yeah. like he's very good at it but it it also seems yeah. like he and and Nisman just became like an incredible duo there during that whole investigation, like the two of them just kind of got each other in a very, very big way, was my impression. That's right. I, I think Albert and Nisman relied on Stu so enormously and respected him. And I think they became very close in building the case against the Iranians on, I think, if it's not necessarily a spoiler, but if you see the the series and watch it carefully, you'll see how they built it on very fragile foundations, but were very able to argue it very well. So they became interdependent. And during the Amory investigation, of course, that set up the situation for what was going to happen later when Albert Nisman accused Christina Kirchner of, of favoring, the, of covering up the guilt of the Iranians. Right, right. That's, I mean, the whole thing takes such an unexpected twist because when you've got a you know, a foreign government, you've got state-sponsored terrorists. It seems like it would be pretty cut and dried from a national security perspective, like, let's get these guys. But then it turns out, as you found and as they found, of course, that there were serious, serious elements within the Argentine government that wanted all of this to go away. And can you explain exactly why that was or why they thought that that was? I want to tell you all about my new favorite fragrance for daily wear. It's called Novichok by Clandestine Laboratories. Novichok is distinctive and combines notes of cocoa powder, chocolate almond tort, rose, jasmine, cinnamon, tonka bean, Peru balsam, and musk tonkin. Unlike some of the other colognes I've worn in the past, I found that Novichok stays with me all day, which was a pleasant surprise. If the name sounds familiar to you, then you might already know why I was so happy to find this company and support them. The name itself comes from the very well-known Russian nerve agent Novichok, which has been used in recent years in several assassination attempts, which I've covered here on the podcast in previous episodes. The name is spelled differently, but rest assured, once you put this on, you'll still make a killer impression wherever you go. Novichok is made in small batches by clandestine laboratories and, like their entire lineup, is available only via direct order. If you're not sure which of their fragrances is right for you, you can also check out the Discovery Stash, six different mini bottles, at one great price, which is perfect for finding your signature scent. So make sure to check them out either via a link in the show notes of this episode or at their website, clandestinelaboratories.com or on Instagram at clandestinelaboratories. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny. The story, the original story, I mean, if you like the, the headline story that you have a, a campaigning prosecutor who bravely accuses the head of state, you know, the, the president of, of being guilty of a heinous crime, of covering up the guilt of, of uh, Iranians in the murder of you know, 85 Argentinians in a, te- in a 
horrible terrorist attack. It's it's such a good story, if you like, that it's very difficult to. It's such a good narrative that it's quite difficult to question that actually. And when I first went to right at the beginning of the filming in 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 the beginning of two thousand seventeen, when I started talking to people and finding out about the the crime scene, about what had happened just before the crime scene, and and what kind of person Alberto Nisman was, and the backstory. It actually seemed to me to be fairly, fairly obvious. And this was a problem because I was determined to keep an open mind about suicide or, or murder right till the end. And I did. But right at the beginning, there were certain things, like, for instance, Alberto Nisman that morning had, had been online checking a site about life after death. He was clearly under a great deal of pressure. And the fact that if the, the motivation for... He had already made his, his accusation on television, very spectacular in prime time, and he was about to go to the, to the parliament to, to, to make a kind of exposition of his, of his accusations. There was no real indication that he had any new information. And so it seemed to me pretty unlikely that the government would want to kill him because he's already made the accusation. I mean, if he, it would make more sense to kill him before he made the accusation or before he, he expanded his evidence. But to kill him afterwards, it seemed to be like a very strange thing. And also the other thing was that it, it definitely damaged the government more than it helped the government. I mean, his death was a really, really difficult moment for them, precisely because it was such a good story. And it seemed like it was pointing the finger at the government. But it, it just didn't seem to make sense to me very much at the beginning that this would be very likely. That if the government, I mean, it, it just didn't, from, a, from the simple idea that why would they want to kill him at that particular moment? It would make no sense at all. So having said that, I was determined to keep an open mind. So the next four years, and there were times when, when it seemed more likely than not. But I have to say that and when the, the, the series came out in... in on Netflix and whole Latin America and Argentina, and I was interviewed by Argentinian media, I was very careful not to say what I thought about whether it was suicide or murder. Not because I didn't have an opinion. In fact, I'm pretty damn sure that it's fairly obvious which, which one it is. But because I wanted people to follow the story and reason for themselves rather than just add another opinion. Right, so yeah, I think I... it's easy. It's, it's interesting. I mean, it would be interesting, Justin. You tell me. What's your impression? Well, I definitely see it both ways, and you know, I didn't spend the amount of time, of course, on this story as you did, but I also have seen a lot of stories where – or I have covered a lot of stories here in the past couple of years with this podcast and my own writing and that sort of thing where you know, things look one way, but the more you dive into it, you know, there are some circumstances there that don't really line up with the, the line. And I've also found that you know, quite frankly, the, the idea that someone would kill him the night before he was to testify before Congress, that's a real, that's like a, a trope from a lot of fictional films and all that. So that seed has already been planted in the mind of the viewer. But just like you mentioned, there's also some pretty compelling evidence that he may have been at a very, very low moment of his personal life the night before that testimony. Just like you said. So that's, you know, something I really am glad that you explored in the documentary and that we're exploring right now in this conversation. So since we're talking about this testimony that he made, what was the specific allegation that he was finally prepared to make in 2015 right before he – or that he was hinting at right before he died? 
He was simply sustaining, really, without any, any new evidence, that Christina Kirchner and the Argentinian government had done a kind of secret deal whereby they would be lifting the, what are called the red notices, Interpol red notices, on a series of Iranian suspects. This has been an issue that's been rumbling on since Alberto Nisman was partly responsible for, or largely responsible for, getting Interpol to impose red notices on a series of Iranians who are suspected of, of or he alleged had some connection with, with the bombing, the bombing of the Amir. And so it was really Alberto Nisman collected evidence, or he thought he collected evidence, because a lot of it, kind of on, under closer examination, kind of falls apart, that supposed that elements of Christina Kirchner's government, with her approval, were negotiating with Iranians to try and get their, well, to try and get them off the red, off the Interpol red, red notices list, and so that somehow that would mean that Argentina, Argentina could do business with Iran. It was all, if, on closer inspection, it was all very, 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 very flimsy. And in fact, some of it, and this comes out in the last episode in the series, some of it was kind of fed to Alberto Nisman by Stusa, even mm. though that he knew it was false. So in fact, in fact the thing is, it's, it seems that the, that the it's, it's a story that's as, if you like, as, yeah, as cinematic, if you like, as narratively speaking, as the simple one, which is the brave prosecutor being murdered by the evil president. In fact, if you go deep into it, it's a rather more interesting story of this extremely sophisticated counter-espionage that's able to use that kind of a story for other ends, which is basically the covering up of the Amory investigation to protect people who we still don't know who they are. And, and this manipulation, psychological and, and informational manipulation of a prosecutor like, like Alberto Nisman. Yeah, that really gets the wheels spinning there, honestly, because if someone other than Nisman himself or you know, someone operating under the orders of, of President Kirchner, you know, if someone else, a third party, had had him killed, that would really kind of cement his story in the minds of the public as the true story. And he was killed to prevent that story from getting out, even though it already had gotten out. So I can see how others might have something to gain from it besides Nisman himself and besides President Kircher's administration there. So just a, a lot of possibilities there, obviously. It's a very confusing but interesting incident for sure. Sure, sure. So well, I, think you... there are a lot of, I think there are a lot of interests to sustain the accusation against the Iranians, even though it's... I think or certainly not true. I mean, we've got, both got the you know, CIA and the FBI in the last episode, episode saying that. So I think it's not, it's not kind of controversial to say it. Even now, it gets reported in the press that in relation to Amir, that it's, you know, that it was the Iranians who were, who were responsible for it. And I think that's, it's been used by, you know, Netanyahu in his tours of the states to, to argue for, you know, a tougher line against Iran. So it's been used a lot. That's only one way in which it's been used. I think it's also been used in other ways in Argentina, obviously. And I think that's one of the characteristics. And I think the CIA, the former CIA chief in Buenos Aires says that at the end, that it's, he's, he's pretty convinced that nobody wanted, want, wanted this to be, to be clarified. It was used for, and still is being used, for various different interests. Having said that, if you, if you do pick up on that, then I think 
you can sort of clarify certain things. That I think that I think it's fairly clear that it, Iran was not behind the Amir bombing, and I think it's fairly clear that Alberto Nisman committed suicide. Hmm. Wow, it's it's so good to hear you say that honestly and kind of because no one has looked at this more closely than you, no one outside of Argentina, I would imagine. But it it really really gets the wheels turning, like I, I mentioned, and I I could definitely see that because. As you mentioned, he had already kind of put his theory out there publicly because he was doing so many, you know, television interviews and that sort of thing in the days leading up to that congressional testimony. So does it seem to you that maybe the night before he realized he didn't have what he had said he had? I mean, would that be his motivation or was it something else, you know, that might have led him to feel that kind of despondency to actually take his own life right before testifying? Yeah, there's a phrase in Spanish which is huyendo al futuro, which is kind of fleeing into the future. And I think towards the end of his life, Alberto Nisman was kind of fleeing into the future. And he was, he was trying to kind of please the people who were backing him. That also included sort of the, the hard Republican right in the United States, but also, you know, the anti, anti-Kirchner, anti-government kind of people in Argentina, um, you know, Israel definitely on his side. His whole the investment in his kind of his persona, which is this special prosecutor doing this one particular job. So he was kind of fleeing into the future, and he had to keep, if you like, he had to keep. He was being accused by the victims of not actually doing anything and not solving the case, mm. and so and so he needed to do something. And he actually had two completely different plans because they found in his apartment two if you like, two different speeches or two different cases. One was much more supportive of the Kirchner government and one was attacking the Kirchner government. Huh. But anyway, so when he chose to go on to the attack, that was kind of upping the game, upping the stakes a lot. And to go on to primetime television and accuse the president of the government, Christine Kirchner, you, even with all the backing that he had, that was a pretty high-risk move in the sense of, you know, if you're going to do that, then you've got to prove it. And yes, I think in the days between making the accusation, and he was being egged on by lots of his, if you like, backers, political backers mostly. And I think, yeah, he found himself, when he was going over his, his material and thinking about appearing in, in the Congress, I think he started to feel that he didn't have it, especially when there's this guy called Alan Bogado, who is an interesting piece in this puzzle. Okay, Alan Bogado, I remember that name. Can you tell me a little bit about him? He's like a mini Stusa, if you like. He's an up-and-coming Stusa, but he's a freelance. And I suppose, like in many walks of life, you know, intelligence has become less of a, a kind of, you know, long, long-term career job and more of a freelance job. And so in Argentina particularly, they're always kind of, they're called inorganicos, and they're kind of freelance investigators or sources who trade information. And Alan Bogado was key to this case because some of the wiretaps that Alberto Nisman was basing his case on to show that the government was secretly negotiating with the Iranians were between Alan Bogado and some members of the you know, Arabic community or Iranian-linked community. They weren't actually Iranians, but people like sort of supposedly with links to the Iranians in Argentina. Alberto Nisman was convinced that Alan Bogada was an agent of the, of the state intelligence working for the government, in other words, Christina Kirchner. 
and so that she, he was working on her, his behalf. And this guy, Alan Barada, was very good at, if you like, almost too good at riling Nisbin. He used to talk about Nisbin in, in the wiretaps with his Arab contacts and saying what a, you know, what a mess this guy was making and how he was going to be surprised and how he was going to be humiliated and, and, and anyway, talking, talking trash about Alberto <laughs> Nisbin. And some of this found its way into, because Alberto Nisbin got these wiretaps from Stuso and then put them into his accusation as, as, as proof that uh, there was back-channel negotiations going on. Mm-hmm. And then I think he found out in the days before, when he was getting closer to, to coming to, to give his evidence in the Parliament, he became, and he was trying desperately to get hold of Stuso to try and guarantee that this guy was actually a, a government agent, and he began to realize that he wasn't, that he'd been tricked. Oh, man. Yeah, hard to imagine what that would have done to his psyche. Exactly, yeah. So, Justin, can you take us to the actual night of his death? I know we've referred to it a number of times, but what exactly was found there once his body was discovered? I mean, what were the circumstances that led people to think maybe it was a murder, maybe it was a suicide? Yes, I mean, the... In, in, the, in the documentary, this is literally almost kind of minute by minute, and there are so many, you know, phone calls and text messages, actually during the day. I mean, the whole thing sort of built up over a period of time. He kind of holed himself up in his apartment after making this spectacular accusation on television. And in the last day, I'm, going to start, I'm probably going to get some of the timings wrong and some of the details wrong, but basically what happened is he... he, he he, he got the gun from a, from a kind of a friend, a colleague, um, and, and then he was on his own. And in the morning, he got up, but I, I, basically he stopped. I'm just trying to work out the timings here. But basically, the big thing was he stopped communicating, and so people started to get worried. The day before, he'd been communicating. He'd gone to bed, and he was still communicating. Then early the next morning, you know, communication sort of stopped, and people started to get worried. And eventually, his mother and a friend turn up at his apartment and they can't get in and they have to get a locksmith to come and get in. Eventually they get in and eventually they find Alberto Nisman dead in the bathroom. They can't open the door because he's kind of pushed against it. And so they call a kind of private hospital, which is the telephone call that you hear right at the beginning of the, of the, of the series. And his mother is, is sort of strangely cool and articulate, but she was probably in shock. And she then sat on the bed and opposite the door of the, of the bathroom, and they waited for, waited for the police. I mean, the, the doctor came first and from the private hospital, and they saw that he was dead, and they basically didn't even make a checkup. They just looked in and said, "No, he's dead," and then left slightly strangely. Hmm. There was then there was then a, then the you know the police arrived, and then a, another doctor certified that he was dead. And then the prosecutor arrived, and then basically the door was kept shut. The mother was you know in the bedroom still looking on. So some policemen was sort of stationed around to make sure nothing was got tampered with. And then, but then the prosecutor, Viviana Fain, who took on the case, arrived quite a lot later. And before she arrived, some other people, various other kind of 
security officials, including one security official very close to Christina Kirchner, arrived. I mention this because this gave rise to all kinds of you know, speculation and conspiracy theories. And then when Viviana, Viviana Fain did arrive, she's, kind of, she's a normal prosecutor. Frankly, to tell you the truth, this isn't in the documentary, but totally true, nobody wanted this case. Viviana Fain was woken up, I think, to several other prosecutors, especially the federal prosecutors, the more senior prosecutors who kind of walked away from it. They didn't want it. Viviana Fain is a fantastic prosecutor, a kind of normal sort of lower down scale prosecutor who's done a fantastic job over many years. And, but she was kind of woken up and got out of bed and, and so turned up at the, at the apartment around midnight, I think. So it was kind of two, two and a half hours after Alberto Nisman had been discovered dead. And then there's a sort of police film, a lot of photographs. So it's fairly well documented and became obviously a huge debating point about whether they'd done it well or whether they'd done it badly or whether they'd, you know, contaminated the scene. And I suppose without going into a great deal of details, they did a perfectly decent job. Certainly at the kind of normal standards of murder investigations in Argentina and really missed nothing. It was then, you know, examined and re-examined and questioned. But I think that the way in which it was questioned, it's interesting to see it play out in the documentary, I hope, but had a lot more to do with the, the, the motivations of wanting it to be different than actually it being. Her investigation is a fairly straightforward and, and commonsensical kind of investigation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was my impression of it as well. How did the rest of the government react to all this? Like, how did Kirchner handle this once, you know, the eyes of the public were on her in the aftermath of his death? Well, Christina Kirchner is also prone to exaggeration, if you like. <laughs> That's one of the things that sort of, I mean, she, she sort of almost handed it to them by, by kind of overreacting. Not, not necessarily totally unreasonably, but in the sense that behind this, there is a kind of counter-espionage plot. It may not be very precise, but it's more like a whole series of interests pulling in that direction. And, and Albertanismo was caught up in that. She st immediately started to call this out and, and relate it back to the AMIA, which she did have some form on, if you like, because she was involved in, 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 a, in, a, in a sort of parliamentary commission that oversaw the investigation of the AMIA, and so she didn't know quite a lot about it. But what happened was, by, by defending herself and defending the government, the effect, basically, was to rile people even more. And so, so the level of tension, the level of you know, mutual accusations just shot up in Argentina. It was, you know, it was a tremendously tense time. It's hard to imagine. I mean, I can watch it in the documentary, but, you know, the people that were involved and have been watching this investigation unfold for over 20 years at that point, I mean, they must have been beyond upset at how everything had played out and probably were feeling like they would never have straight answers about anything at that point. Absolutely. Both the supporters of Albert Junismo, because the Jewish community as well, you know, the victims' families, you know, they, they were kind of split too. There are some who are great, were great supporters of Albert Junismo and, and great accusers, if you like, of Iran and wanted and were sort of campaigning to keep the accusations against Iran going. And then there are another half, another side of the, of the victims' families who were very, very skeptical and basically very skeptical of the investigation, very skeptical of Nisman, 
But no, I don't think any, any of them wished for, for him to, to, to die under these circumstances. And also it, it was depressing for them, all of them, to see how, you know, this was not going to lead to any clarification of anything. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it is hard to imagine. So what happened to Stiuso in the aftermath of all this? Because he was the one kind of most closely linked to the investigation besides Nisman, wasn't he? That's right. And he f- he fled to the United States quite quickly. He stayed long enough to give evidence to Viviana Fain, although he, he insisted on giving it in a kind of secret location. And then he, he fled to the United States and stayed there until there was a change of government. And when there was a change of government, Mauricio Macri, the new president, vowed to continue the investigation and, and to, to, to and very much supported you know, Alberto Nisman's family and basically took on the theory that he had been murdered. And that's the way the investigations went. And so Stuso came back to Argentina and kind of supported that. Hmm. Did he suffer any consequences of any sort, professional or personal, based on his association with this whole investigation? Not so far. He actually was was fired from the state intelligence just before Alberto Nisman was found dead. That's another strand in the story, if you like, because the reorganization of state intelligence before the death of Nisman, Christina Kirchner was convinced that that was one of the elements that led to this kind of plot against her, if you like. Yeah, I can kind of see why she would feel that way at this point, although she had in some ways kind of made her own bed, and well, in, in many ways had kind of made her own bed with that whole situation, I think. So to this date, now, 2023, has anyone ever been arrested for the AMIA bombings or any like named suspects that are currently on the loose? Or is it just the guys on the red notices still? Still the guys on the red notices from, from, of the Iranians and the other people who were originally arrested in the, in the first case or the first version of the case, of course, are, are free. And so, no, nobody is in jail. Nobody has nobody's been sentenced for the bombing of the Amir. Hmm. They're either absent or, 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 or unknown. Well, yeah, this is just it's a terribly sad story in, in so many ways, honestly, for so many people. And your own theory then is that Nisman probably did kill himself that night rather than kind of, or, you know, on the verge of having to face that he didn't have what he thought he had and what he had said he had? Yes, I'm almost totally certain that's the case for so many different reasons. Partly because there's no evidence whatsoever to sustain a a case of murder. But there are many, many reasons. And I think even that that one about him... uh, him checking a, a checking a website about life after death, you know, about what would happen after death to your body, and the sort of the sort of kind of psychedelic websites and things like that that he was checking out. And there was an attempt to literally, you know, minutes before he 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 shot himself, and there were attempts by the people supporting the the murder theory that somehow somebody had got into the into his computer to sort of fabricate this as part of the cover-up. And that was a sort of out there but that for, for a while, but he, that was absolutely, totally taken down. So there was no, there's no doubt that Alberto Nisman was checking out those sites shortly before shooting himself. And that in itself is a, is a reasonable indication, I think, 
of his state of mind. Yeah, it certainly is. It certainly is, especially if that evidence is kind of irrefutable at this point. Do you anticipate that there will be continued developments in this story? I mean, there, there kind of have been for decades at this point, but do you think that there is any other, any more like big reveals that might happen in the future, or is it just going to remain a kind of an open wound for that entire country at this point? Gosh, unfortunately, I think it's very difficult now for this to be clarified unless there were to be some sort of a, a kind of a confession. I think there's a guy called Mario Simadavidia who was appointed by the Macri government, actually, the, you know, the post-Christina Kirchner government, as a sort of independent unit to investigate AMIA, but more from a kind of more from an institutional level and, and find new ways. And I think they made some pretty good progress, actually, in the big picture, because I think they were able to certainly question the Iranian theory and, and focus more on the sort of local elements and the sort of the mafia businesses that were going on at the time. Anyway, I think they made some steps in that direction. I suppose the only hope would be that somebody in that direction was able to shed some light on in the future. But of course, at this, you know, in 30... 30 years distance, it's, it's very, very difficult that that's going to happen. Yeah, yeah. Sad but true, certainly. Well, it's, it's an amazing story nonetheless, and I don't think that anybody has covered it as well as you have. It's, it's hard to imagine that they could have at this point. So I'm very grateful to you for putting all this together in such a cohesive manner because this story is kind of the farthest thing from cohesive, unfortunately, but you did a great job of laying it all out in your documentary. Thank you so much, Justin. That's, I appreciate that. I really do. I really do. It's still talking about it now. It still makes me want to find out more. That there is a saying that everybody um, is kind of like the curse of the of the Amia. And people, lots of people got sucked into it and had and suffered a lot from these twists and turns and and, and delays and and absorb, you know tremendously onerous kind of judicial proceedings. So yes, be careful. You might get sucked into it. <laughs> I, I do know that feeling. There are stories that I. Even now, I return to over and over again. And, you know, especially with the way that, for example, here in the U.S., the way that things don't get declassified for 25 or 50 years, if at all, sure. you know, there are stories I'm like, you know, they just happened 12 years ago. I'm like, I cannot wait another 13 years or 37 years to find out the truth behind it. I want to know right now, but that's not really the way it works, unfortunately. Sure, sure. No, I was listening to one of your podcasts where there was some declassified documents from 30 years ago. The, the CIA guy who who, who also probably committed suicide from what I can gather. Yes. But there are other theories about it, yes. And that was there were some documents that came out. I don't know if actually there there are some there are some things that I was still chasing up right at the end. The FBI, for instance, this whole question about whether there was any DNA whether it ever existed to to link Hezbollah. And I think that there isn't, definitely, but there's maybe a story about why they lied about it. Hmm. That might still come out. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's something I'll I'll certainly pay attention to any breaking developments on it. You know, but I'm just I'm not sure when we can expect anything, if ever. Unfortunately, I'm sure you feel the same way. Sure. Sure. So, Justin, what are you working on now? Have you got another documentary in the works at the moment? Yes, I'm doing a bit of football, <laughs> which is the other. There's a series about football agents that is just about to come out on Sky and Universal, which I worked on last year. But I have a couple of other projects which we are which are in development. One is a sort of multinational social media kind of platform investigation. I can't say more because that's the trouble with these kind of projects. You can't broadcast them too much when you're working on them. 
And there's also a, an extraordinary story from the 90s in Spain, which is more of a kind of journalistic scandal. It's about a newspaper editor who'd investigated state terrorism and then was humiliated by a sex, sex video, but fortunately, you know, kept going and is still a newspaper editor today. But it's kind of a look into that time when, in Spain, where everybody was was compiling, you know, kind of compromat or, or dossiers of, of compromising information on everybody else. Hmm, that does sound interesting, for sure. I like the way that you kind of cycle between the sports dramas and the political intrigue dramas as well, because those really reached a couple of very wide audiences, but for some of the very similar reasons, honestly. So that's that's a fantastic way to kind of bounce between two different worlds, I think. <laughs> yes, it's kind of necessary, but it's, you know, it is good. It is good. They're totally different. Right, right. But they're very enticing nonetheless, despite their different. Sure. sure so, sure. Uh, Justin, do you have like a public facing social media or anything like that if people want to connect with you or follow your upcoming projects? I don't really. I've kind of given Twitter a, a break. I'm trying out Mastodon at the moment, but I'm not very I'm not very active on social media, to tell you the truth. What we do do is we have, even our website is pretty kind of old and creaky. So so I don't know what we can do about that, actually. What's the best way of, I think, yeah, probably just sending messages via my Twitter profile, but I don't check it out that often. Okay, yeah, I, I'm not very big on Twitter myself either, unfortunately. I spend a lot more time on Instagram. That's kind of where I found my audience, but Twitter has not done a whole lot for me at this point. I mostly just use it honestly to reach out to people that I want to interview. And it has been very good for that because everybody's oh. on there, but I don't actually post a whole lot myself. Yes. I haven't got the hang of Instagram. The rest of my family obviously have, <laughs> but I haven't quite got that. I'll, I'll, I'll see if I can do that and maybe follow you and see how you do it. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, I appreciate that, but there's no shame in not spending a whole lot of time on social media. Believe me. That's, that's one thing I know for yeah. certain. There's other better yeah, sure, things you can be doing sure. with your time. Like listening to podcasts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Can't recommend that enough. So for everyone listening, the documentary series that we mentioned is on Netflix right now. It is called Nisman, The President, The Prosecutor, and The Spy. Justin, do you happen to know how long it will be on Netflix? Is it like a, you know, for a, a few months or for a year or more, to your knowledge? Gosh, I don't know. I think they've got it. I, they, I think the contract is for eight years. Oh, wow. Okay. So, so it should be on for, and it's been on for, what, a couple of years now, three years now. So, so, but I mean, they could take it down any time, I guess. Yeah, um, yeah. Stuff tends to come and go. I'll bookmark something and then I can't find it a couple of months later. So I would hate for people to miss out on this since it's so easily accessible on Netflix to the U.S. audience. Sure, sure. Well, a, a multi-year contract like that is fantastic, though. So hopefully even people listening to this a couple of years from now will be able to find it right afterwards as well. So, yeah, once again, the documentary title is Nisman, the President, the Prosecutor, and the Spy. Justin, I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. That was a wonderful documentary and a great talk as well. Thank you so much, Justin. I really, really enjoyed it. Great. All right. Well, for, take care. Uh, thanks for inviting me. Cheers. If you're interested in more of Spycraft 101, look for my pages on Instagram at spycraft101 and at cold.war.stamps. You can also find more great articles on my website, spycraft101.com. Thank you all for listening, and I hope you'll stick around because there is lots more to come. Disclaimer. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only.
The stories and statements expressed herein are experiences and opinions. They may not reflect the views of the host or the production studio. It's okay if you disagree with our content. No piece of media is right for everyone. If you love Spycraft 101, please check us out online, on Instagram, on YouTube, and especially on Patreon. Thank you for listening.